Welcome to Toby Haydock's Who's Round. I was very nervous about this one, and I really needn't have been. Well, welcome everybody. I'm in quieter patisserie Valerie than the uh, the one that has so far has the noisiest podcast which was number eight uh, and I'm very I'm delighted to be with a gentleman who I'm slightly embarrassed to be talking about Doctor Who to because he has done so much and has a status in the profession but he does have one Doctor Who landmark that he may not know about but before I touch, shock him with that I'm going to ask him to tell me who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who well, my name is Vernon Dobcheff, and I'm a British-French actor, I suppose, and um, I've been lucky enough to work for several decades in film, theatre, television and radio, and uh, as far as Doctor Who was concerned, I was in an Ibsen play at Alls House in, at the Watford Theatre in... I've no idea. I'm sure you know, but I've no idea. 1969. Which, was it really? Yeah. That was the end. Yes. And I was offered three weeks in Doctor Who. And my dear, sweet, beloved mother had just gone into a nursing home, which was not cheap. So I thought, well, I better do it. Uh, I mean, I, I had nothing against Doctor Who, but it, it came in happily. And... Um, I think uh, a week before, I'd, I'd had an interview with the film director, John Huston. Very happy uh, one-hour interview at the Connaught Hotel, and I liked him very much, and he reminded me of my old friend Wilfred Lawson, the actor, and he offered me a part in his next film, which was called The Kremlin Letter, and which was to be shot in Rome, and, uh, of course, I accepted happily. And I had barely signed the contract for Doctor Who when the casting director from uh, the Kremlin said, oh, Mr. Houston's bringing his dates forward. Can you go out to Rome tomorrow? And I couldn't, of course, because I had signed with Doctor Who. And it saddened me uh, because I would have liked to work with Mr. Houston. I liked the part. And uh, the scene was with George Sanders, whom I admired greatly as an actor, and I would have liked to work with him, and Max von Sydow, whom I did have the good fortune to work with later. So, initially I was sad, of course, uh, to miss Mr. Houston's film. But uh, the Doctor Who experience was, on the whole, very agreeable. Uh, I will qualify that. Um, the director, David Maloney, was delightful. A good man. Patrick Troughton, who was playing Doctor Who, and his son, David, whose first television job it was, was in it. And there was uh, an Australian actor, Edward Brayshaw, and um, likeable actors. There was one big problem, however. Uh, I was playing a scientist, and so were two of us, and we were acting behind masks, and this is no fun at all. And at the time, I was rather short-sighted and needed glasses, which I don't anymore now. But the combination of being short-sighted behind a mask and having one's... Um, uh, I can't remember, I can't remember honestly, whether there were any times... I think there were times when I didn't wear the mask, but most of the time I was wearing a mask. So the actual job wasn't much fun. 
um, because of that, but not because of David Maloney, not because of the Troutons, not because of Doctor Who, and um, also I was worried about my mother. But that was, it was a three-week engagement, and um, I don't regret it, of course, but I did regret at the time uh, losing the John Huston film, and I didn't work with John again, alas. And an offshoot of that has been that many years later, um, the dear man, David Richardson, who runs uh, an outfit which you must know well called um, Big Finish, um, has asked me mm, three or four times to come in and do um, uh, a part, or indeed a number of parts, in various of his uh, radio scripts which are usually um, offshoots of Doctor Who or Doctor Who scripts which um, haven't been done or which are being done on radio. And occasionally there have been a couple also which are nothing to do with Doctor Who. And Mr. Richardson and his team, they, they have a wonderfully organized studio in uh, Cancel Rise. And uh, each actor has a microphone of his own, which of course when you do... I do a lot of radio, especially in France, I work in French and Italian and German too, and um, to have a microphone of one's own to speak into and to be able to see and hear all the other actors is a great joy. And every time David is kind enough to ask me uh, to contribute to his Doctor Who enterprise, uh, I'm very happy to do so. And that is my connection with Doctor Who. <laughs> and did you know, because you were in Patrick Troughton's last story... Yes. which was the first time, and up till that point, nobody knew where Doctor Who had come from. Yes. And in that story, it was revealed that Doctor Who was on the run from the Time Lords, right. who have since become part of the show's rich tapestry. Yes. But you, Mr. Dobcheff, yes. are the first person in Doctor Who to say the word Time Lords. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. I had no idea. <laughs> so, so that great big announcement comes from you. Yes. Normally, I see with um, um, embarrassment... Um, some performances I attempted to give several decades ago, either in one of London or Paris or Rome National Film Theatre, or sometimes on television. And I suppose it would interest me a bit to see my uh, the, the R Doctor Who episodes. I don't know if they exist. They, they do. They, they do. do. I should have. I could have. No, no, set no. Them it's up it's all right. It's not necessary. But um, I don't. Apart from the. Apart from the, the sadness of losing uh, the Kremlin Letter, which was not a successful film, but it, it would always been interesting to work with John um, and Mr. Sanders and Max. Um, I have no regrets about being Doctor Who, but it was a very minor contribution to this huge saga of his. You know, well, um, you, 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 it's a nice part. He's a very genial scientist. Oh, good! I can't and, remember. Uh, I have no memory of it. You know. And, and, it's interesting, Troughton is uh, often cited by actors that I speak mm. to, and he's my favourite doctor, yes. as being their favourite doctor. Do you think that's something to do with his acting? But I mean, he was highly regarded as an actor, wasn't he? Well, Troughton? of course. I mean, uh, Patrick was a... I, you know, we were working hard, and he was working especially hard, so I didn't get to know him well, but I greatly uh, <coughs> enjoyed working in his... Uh, aura, and of course I um, had admired his work as Doctor Who when I'd seen it, and also, um, as you probably know, he was the um, 
walking double for Sir Laurence Olivier in Richard III and played the part of Sir James Tyrrell at the end, you see. So he had, and of course, he had other solid qualifications. As far as being the best Doctor Who, uh, I have no feelings about that. I mean, all of them have had, um, well, one, during the time when Doctor Who has been at, at its height, and even now, at Mr. Um, uh, Tennant and uh, Mr. Smith and all the others, um, it usually is shown at a time when I'm unable to watch television. So I haven't seen a great many of them, though I read about them, of course, and friends of mine have been in them. But I, I couldn't possibly say, uh, you know, compare uh, how good or less good the various doctors were. Well, and the reason I say that I'm slightly embarrassed to approach you about Doctor Who, and I'm very pleased that you... You'll have to say, and I'm going to say this in front of you and on tape, when a friend of mine said, you're doing this, I'm deliberately not going for people who play Doctor Who or companions, because they've all spoken about Doctor Who, and we know about their careers. And and somebody said, if you could get anybody for this podcast, who would you get? And I said, Vernon Dobchek. (laughs) And I'll tell you for a while, it's not because of... Although it's a lovely role in Doctor Who, but it's because you have... I first discovered this in Brian Cox's King Lear Diaries, where he talks about bumping into you and this theory that there are a number of Vernon Tokcheps around the world because you, you, as you've alluded to, you work in Italy, France, Spain. So could you care to explain how you can possibly... the practicalities and how it came that you have this career where you work all over the world, fluent in various languages, um, and never seem to stop, and are everywhere? Well, I've been extremely fortunate. Um, the trouble is, um, uh, well, um, yes, I, I, don't, I don't do the internet at all. I'm told that if you if you Google me, you can see various things that I've done, been part of. Though I gather my birth date is wrong, but my French agent telephoned me in a panic saying they've got your birth date wrong and I said oh really have they made me older or younger and she said older we have to do something I said no no leave it <laughs> leave it I shall have access to senior parts but I don't know I don't know but I've been lucky over the decades to have the immense good fortune to work uh, first in England um, starting in the theatre at the Colchester Rep and three seasons at the Old Vic Theatre in Shakespeare and then, thanks to one performance in that, going to do a play on the stage in Paris, in French, which was, I suppose, my native language. Was I was born in France, though, of a British mother. And um, the French play led to a certain amount of screen work in France, and then um, in Italy, Germany, Austria, because I'd had the good fortune um, well, in Italy, uh, working at the Old Vic with Franco Zeffirelli in his Romeo and Juliet, with uh, Judy Dench and John Stride and Alec McCann uh, for Franco, led to his casting me um, in uh, his first Shakespearean film, which was The Taming of the Shrew, with Elizabeth and Richard, Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton, and a very good cast of actors. And that was four months in Rome, which led to Italian work. And I'd had the very good fortune at school of having a wonderful German teacher, Eric Northcott, who was an Englishman but loved Germany and the German language. And so, uh, I suppose, being in Paris gave me access to various um, 
German and Austrian co-productions and things like that, television and film. And then I was fortunate enough to be in, say, Holocaust, which was shot in Berlin and various things like that. And, and indeed, uh, the first time I worked in Berlin for Dear Anthony Mann, a film, a film which had no success, alas, but which was called The Dandy in Aspic. And um, with Lawrence Harvey and, a very, and Mia Farrow and lots of good actors. And um, I remember we were shooting in rather near Kensal Rise, in fact, and we did, uh, I did the scene I had to do, and he said, um, Vernon, have you ever been to Berlin? I said, no, I haven't, no. He said, oh, yeah. Okay, no, that was very good, that take. We'll do one more, shall we? Oh, by the way, uh, instead of going out through that door, would you go out through the left door? I think it might work better. So, of course, I did it. And I later discovered that if I'd gone out to the previous door, I would have gone into a car park and my scene would have been in England, my next scene. But as I went out to that door, my next scene was in Berlin. <laughs> and so I was very, very grateful to Tony because he introduced me to that great city, which I've just come back from, actually, because I'd, I tried to go each year for a few days to the Berlin Film Festival. But anyway, to answer your question, you know, one thing leads to another. And... Um, you see, if you, um, I don't know what, what sort of photographs there are of me on the internet, but when I was a young actor, I was not a juvenile lead, I was not uh, a girl's beloved, it was difficult. And uh, the first thing people said to me is, the two things you should change, your name and your nose. And I thought about it, and um, I thought, well, they both come from my dad, and um, actually, I don't think I will. Uh, and now I don't regret it. But at the time, it was much harder. And maybe if I'd call myself by my first Christian name and call myself Vernon Alexander, I wouldn't have been typecast into um, uh, foreign parts. But as the years have gone on, I've been lucky because, you know, the face fitted or whatever. Conversely, of course, every self-respecting actor knows that he is probably the 29th choice for every part. But that, that you live with. That's, uh, I always try to find out who was thought of first, because it does help you to uh, respond to what's in the script. But I just feel so lucky that even if I'm the 29th or 35th choice, um, the producers, directors, casting directors' attention has come to rest on me and one tries to justify it. That's all. Well, and the Brian Cox book isn't the only one that you're mentioned in um, because, of course, uh, Rupert Everett, um, in his book, which is wonderful, and if you haven't read it, listeners, please do, it's called, it's got the wonderful title, uh, Red Carpets and Other Banana Skins, where he describes you as the, as the patron saint of the acting profession. Um, so have you, have you read the book? And there's a difference between watching yourself as an actor because you're playing a part and actually reading about yourself as yourself. Was that curious? Well, it made me laugh a lot. I'm very fond of Rupert. Uh, it says in the book, which is perfectly true, that we met before he was an actor. I was, cross, I, uh, I was crossing the channel. I, I go a lot between England and France, and now by Eurostar. But I was crossing the channel in an overnight um, um, ferry. And um, I don't know how we got into conversation, but I had reserved a cabin with two bunks, and I said to him, 
do not get the wrong idea, I'm not after your body, but if you want to use the other bunk, sleep in your more than welcome. So he accepted. And then in his book he says, I extended a jeweled hand towards him and <clears throat> called him dear boy, both of which are patent lies because <laughs> the, only jewel, the only jewel I've ever worn on my hand is my family signet ring, which is on my left hand. And I would never, ever, on first acquaintance, give my left hand to anyone. So that was a lie. And I've never called anyone dear boy in my life, except possibly in a play, but never anywhere else. So those were lies. And then he said that as he put his suitcase up into the rack, he looked in the mirror and he saw I was checking out his bum as he was leaning forward. And I'm deeply grieved to disappoint him, but <laughs> <laughs> Rupert's mum had no interest in, for me at all, though I'm sure it was very shapely. And, um, but the thing that offended me most, I mean, the other things didn't offend me, they made me laugh, but they were wrong, was when he said he woke up in the middle of the night and I was reading and I licked my finger to turn over a page. Now, this is a habit I find repulsive. And I once nearly lost my best Italian friend uh, because he used to do that when he was reading a newspaper. He licked his thing and I said, if ever you do that again, I'm afraid we shan't meet again. So I would never have done that. And so I wrote to Rupert telling him these things. And in the preface to the paperback, I think, of Red Carpets and Bananas, he said Vernon Dobchev has complained that I accused him of licking his finger, but what you have to realize that after the passage of time, it's very difficult to remember who licked what, when, or where. <laughs> I, dear Rupert, I, I have great fondness for him. I think he's very good in the um, David Hare play just now. And have you read his new book, The uh, oh, Vanished Years? It's a good book. Yeah. I'm not in that one, but he's a good book. Yes, yeah, and Brian Cox, of course, whom I greatly admire as an actor, whom I first met when he was my dresser. I was doing, uh, he was at Lambda. Uh, and I was doing, uh, I think, two nights at the Lambda Theatre in a professional production, and he was my dresser. And uh, he has been a loyal and generous friend since then, and I'm delighted to see he's coming to London to be in the Weir at the Donmar Theatre quite soon. What I do try, <coughs> when I'm working films, I really do try, if possible, to go and see all my friends and colleagues working in the theatre, you know, and vice versa. Uh, so I've been in London for a few weeks, so I've been going to plays. Whereas if I, when I, and not films, because I can see them in Paris. But um, you know, one tries to see one's colleagues' work. Some actors don't. It, it's, um, but I, I really do. Well, more than that, though, isn't it that you try and attend uh, every show, and if you don't, you send a card. Um, what I do is when actors are starting in shows. There was a thing that I used to, uh, maybe I did once, but I certainly don't now, attend first nights, because I feel nervous for my colleagues, and I would prefer to see the show in less stressful circumstances. But when my fellow actors are about to embark on a show, and there have been several recently, Helen Merrin and Judy Dench and the people in the Old Vic and in the Winslow Boy, of course I, I, I send them a, an affectionate, fraternal, uh, good wishes card, quite often illegible. Uh, <coughs> Maggie Smith said to me when I asked her, I said, Maggie, did you get a card from me? And she said, yeah, I got a card, as usual, in Coptic. Uh, and um, 
Uh, no, I do, because I think of them. And of course I try to attend the shows. Um, I never tell my friends when I'm going. And uh, because, and uh, if it's satisfactory to me, I go and see them afterwards. And if it isn't, um, I tend... Well, I always... I mean, if I've been to see a show, I always write an appreciative note. But um, nowadays, I have to say that I will not sit in a theatre watching my colleagues working very hard. And if I'm not in agreement with what's happening on the stage, uh, and it may not be the actor's fault, quite often it isn't, I leave because I don't ever want to sit watching my fellow actors work and thinking, oh, for God's sake, just shut up and stop. I don't ever, I don't want to think that, you know. I want to have beautiful thoughts. Occasionally, um, I have been to see a show and found it disappointing and left it into mission and then felt guilty and gone back to see the second half another day, you know, which I do. But no, it's because it's to me it's all part of one thing. Whether it's radio, <coughs> whether it's Doctor Who or Elizabeth Taylor, whether it's um, a play. Last night I saw an interesting little play at the Tristan Bates Theatre at the Actors Centre about Louis Mountbatten and uh, Noel Coward and Agatha Christie. Whether it's that sort of small show, or whether it's a massive piece at the National Theatre, and whether I'm appearing in a mega productions I've been lucky enough to be in or if I'm appearing in a director's first film for almost zero money it's all part of the it's all part of the same working family and um, as you know when one films <clears throat> one does little bits over a long time and whereas so that to go to the theater and see um, a play um, from A to Z, from the beginning to the end with actors and of course the technicians too and uh, going on a journey for three hours is very enriching, you know, it's good. But things have, have, have changed in terms of, say for example, television, yeah. which when you started in television, yes. did you do live television? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and people talk, and a lot of actors that I speak to now say, um, you know, oh, television now is more like filming, so you don't get a company feel and all that sort of thing. But do the audience miss out on anything if the actors aren't a, a company in that way um, that they were when you rehearsed and recorded or rehearsed and went out live? Oh, I, I don't think so. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, the thing is, it's always. I think the work is. All, I mean, there are some directors I know who love working in a spirit of tension and try to destabilize the actors. Sometimes set them against each other. There's a very famous French director who does that and create a <coughs> an atmosphere tension and neuroses on their sets. Uh, this is in films and in the theatre. And I, I, this, to me, I have no use for that sort of thing because I think I don't think one does better work that way. I think one does better work if one is totally relaxed and focused and can rely on one's fellow actors. Um, and hopefully they can rely on one. So, ideally, the more rehearsal one has, the more we know each other, 
the more relaxed and concentrated it should be. Um, I don't. I mean, okay, there are some actors who get bored very easily. John Barrymore was a famous example, and there have been others since. Michael Gambon, I think, gets bored quite soon. Major actor. But um, in, in stage runs, I mean. But um, I think one of the problems is um, in theatre performances, some people are better at the beginning of the run, and when ideally they should be better the more, the more they played. And I remember John Houston, in fact, telling me, I think possibly at that interview, uh, <coughs> that um, his great difficulty when he was filming was that some actors came to the boil on the first take, or the second, and some... Well, he told me about, he told me about Albert Finney, uh, who was doing a film for him, and doing a very difficult, drunken part, and he was ready on the first and second take. And he was working with a very beautiful actress and a very conscientious actress, but she was nervous. And she only started getting good around about the 17th take. And the problem was that Albert was getting less good because he was having to do the same thing. So, and <clears throat> that is difficult. But um, no, um, of course, when we were doing live television, um, my first television ever, oh well, quite a few televisions, but the first one was a play called Traveller Without Luggage by Anui, and it was to be with Trevor Howard, but he withdrew, and it was Keith Michel and uh, Valerie Taylor, a wonderful actress, and uh, Diana Churchill and uh, Michael Goff, and a lot of good actors, directed by Casper Vreda, who was a man of enormous distinction, and we did this live, and of course we were under great tension. And Diana, God rest her, um, with whom I had my first scene, um, started talking the most total nonsense uh, on the take. But since <coughs> the scene was us telling the audience about the situation, I had to improvise <coughs> a lot to try and catch up with what she hadn't said. Um, but uh, no, I think... Uh, um, well, I mean, I think the answer to your question is the better the actors know each other and the more comfortable they feel with each other, the better the work is likely to be. You know? I mean, what I do is I keep a book in which every time I work, I ask everybody in the team to sign. Um, this is more actually for the technical crew than it is for the actors because um, I never forget and no self-respecting actor ever forgets that without the work all day and every day of each member of the film or television or theatre or radio crew, the actor's performance would not mean much. So that's why I always, at the end or in the last days, ask them all to sign and I now have 12 books of signatures. And I'm so grateful to be part of a profession that um, has produced it, and one tries to learn from them with humility and love. Well, it's with great humility that I thank you for, you know, sparing me your time to talk about a small part of a huge and wonderful career. So I, I just ask you to nominate a, a, a charity that the listeners can uh, donate to. Yes, well... Um, uh, anything to do with children, you see, uh, is important to me. And at the moment, uh, UNICEF, I would very happily 
ask anything to be given to them, you know. UNICEF it is, and um, the, the springboard for this conversation, uh, which I'm surprised didn't make you laugh me out of the room when it was suggested to you, was to start talking about Doctor Who, and Doctor Who's 50 this year. So what's your message to the Doctor Who fans out there who are listening to this podcast on this 50th anniversary of Doctor Well, I think, <clears throat> as I said, it's one of my sadnesses that I've not been able over the years to pay attention to the various uh, developments of Doctor Who and um, though I gather I can catch up with them on cassette so I shall one day but no I mean my message is really uh, to anyone who has enthusiasm for uh, something that is made uh, and created and for those people who make it and create it and of course who are gratified by that enthusiasm is to go on being enthusiastic go on being enthusiastic I would say much as I admire the participants of Doctor Who don't let it be your entire life get a life if possible <laughs> but um, but you know your enthusiasm is a lifeblood for the people who make programs um, to try to interest you you know well, that's very kind. But do, yes, everyone, get a life. Uh, I shall do my best to do that. Uh, this was the one I was most nervous about. You've made it very easy. So I'd just like to say, Vernon Dobjeff, thank you very much. Well, thank you for, as I say, for, for, my, for um, uh, my being the 347th choice, but I'm very happy to be here. <laughs> Worth oh. the first. Vernon's uh, charity was UNICEF. UNICEF can be found at www.unicef.org.uk. Thanks for listening. There'll be another one along shortly. Someone playing Rossini! Yes, that might be it, elaborated the Doctor. Someone's always playing Rossini. He's a hugely popular component of the light orchestral repertoire. We need to check concert houses, nightclubs, jazz venues, anywhere someone might be playing Rossini. His eyes glinted. Let's make like blue-bottomed blue bottles, shall we? Helpless to resist, Charlie picked up her cavalry officer's heels and followed the Doctor as he galloped off into the West End night. Oh. The next thing Charlie knew, pretty much, it was morning, in an unfamiliar flat on an unfamiliar couch. Well, where the devil... Oh, will you stop it with the Rossini? Sorry, did I wake you? Didn't realise I was doing it. Think about that tune, once it's in your head... It's hard to get it out, I know. Well, it's your fault, miss. You were humming it in your sleep, best part of the night. Suppose I must have just picked it up, like I seem to have picked up... You. Excuse me, you've picked up no one, sir. Oh, Lord, I didn't mean... No, sorry. Don't you remember getting here from the music hall? Wherever here is, no. Just my little old bachelor flat in Portland Place. Look, that's a broadcasting house. And the little old bachelor is? Hilary Hammond, at your service.
Doctor Who Enemy Aliens, performed by India Fisher with Michael Maloney as Hilary Hammond. <laughs>